If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of James, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 10. James 4, 1 through 10. Today's sermon uh, is titled, Pride and Humbleness, as we're uh, dealing with the issues of pride and humility. Um, one of when I've been when I was looking at this passage, getting into dealing with this sermon, this text, and, and studying it, uh, trying to form because I think one of the very important things we have to do when we talk about things like pride and humility is we all have to be on the same page about what pride and humility are. Um, and and so looking at that, I wanted to see what does the Bible say about pride and humility. And in studying for today's sermon, I realized that I am perhaps one of the most humble men in this church. Okay, it's a, it's a joke. I'm going to get there, okay? Um, in Hebrew, the concept of pride is most often expressed with the word gaun, which uh, refers to height. And so pride is referred usually as being tall, and humility is being lowly or low to the ground. So I'm quite proud or quite humble compared to... <laughs> there is a, it's a height joke, okay, if you didn't get it. Um, so, all joking aside, uh, this makes our sense of... Our idea of pride being up high, this makes sense with that, right? In, in society, right, you're, you're proud, you're kind of puffed up, you're, your head's high, you're proud, you're arrogant, potentially, is, is how we think of it. And humility in the, in the Old Testament carries the idea of being low, Crouch down, right? We, we see when, when people bow down, right? They show their submission. They, they bow down to the ground. It's, you're, you're humbling yourself. So pride is typically looked at as having a high view of oneself. Arrogance. I think this is correct, but I think it's incomplete. I want to add to this as we go. Humility is characterized often by underrepresenting oneself, Right? When we think about someone being humble, it's, it's the person that's worth millions or even billions of dollars, but they drive a really normal car or they wear really normal clothes. They don't appear to be what they are. Is that what humility is? Is it, is it underrepresenting yourself? I don't think really that is what humility is at all. In, in a conversation, and I did think that way for a long time in my life, is that if you had a, a lower view, you lowered your view of yourself, and that was being humble. Right? You, you maybe looked at what you were and you tried to not let yourself think you were what you were. But I had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine several years ago, and he gave me a definition of being humble I'd never heard before, and it changed the way I thought of it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Okay, So in my mind, I had this idea that you needed to not think of yourself as, as being good or exceptional or, or having a high view of yourself, because really that is what we think pride is, right? Having a high view of yourself is prideful. And so in my mind, the, the opposite was having a low view of yourself must be being humble. But the reality is you can have a very low view of yourself and, and really be quite prideful. Especially in our social media age, how many people, when they have a picture taken of them, their, their first concern is, well, how do I look in the picture? Oh, you can't post that. I don't look very good in that picture. And in this person may in their head have a, a low self-image. They may not think, they may not like the way they look. They would change this. They would change that. But in that low view of themselves, they're quite prideful. Why? Their primary concern is with how they look. They have a high view. They're thinking a lot 
about themselves. So pride is having a high view of yourself, but it's also asserting and thinking of yourself a lot. Pride is not just thinking too much of yourself. It's thinking of yourself too much. Placing a high emphasis on what you want and what you think and what you believe and what, you, what matters to you. Pride is not being someone important. It is the assertion and making sure everyone knows that you are someone important. However, with this, we must realize that pride takes many forms. It's not just a successful person bragging. It's any person insisting on their own way. Selfishness and pride are intrinsically linked. You have to be prideful to be selfish. And if you're being selfish, you're being prideful because you think that you matter enough to assert what you want. You do this because you are placing yourself above others. That is prideful. Pride does not have to only be an elevated sense of who you are. It can be an elevated sense of how important your desires are. And and with that, you'll understand why we've talked about all this before we even got into the Scripture, because this passage talks about pride, but it doesn't say the word pride until halfway through. But the whole first section of this passage is dealing with pride being the root issue. So with that, let's read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that it may be spent on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the Scriptures say, the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely? But He gives greater grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank You for the day that You've given us today. We thank You for this time that we can gather together. And God, I pray that during this time you would help us to look at your word. You help us to examine ourselves to see whether we are living pridefully in our lives, whether we are living humbly before you. I pray that you would help us to have an honest examination of ourselves, to to see what it means to humble ourselves before you and to follow you fully, Lord. I pray that you be with us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The first thing that we see is that pride is a universal issue that causes problems. Pride is a universal issue that causes problems. What I mean by this, every person deals with pride and it causes problems. The first part of this passage deals with our passions. And as I mentioned before, there's a direct relationship between selfishness and pride. And even though the word pride does not appear to the second portion of this passage, this entire first part of this passage is about pride. 
Because our passions wage war within us, and the pride we have about what we want when we deal with others, right? What is the source of wars and fights among you? Why are you fighting with one another? Why is there animosity? Why is there conflict? Because of your passions that wage war within you. Because you have desires, and you desire, and you don't have, and you can't obtain, so you, you desire, you murder, but you cannot obtain. Several, I think it's probably been months ago, on a, on a Wednesday night, I, I shared, a pass, I shared a, an article that had been collected of, of some of the silliest reasons that churches have argued, or arguments that have happened in churches, and some of these actually led to church splits. Um, so I'm going I'm to read these to you, and we're going to see about some of these passions that wage war within us, and they cause the, the, the wars and fights among us. There was a, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Um, there was a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. A deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the, market, the matter in the parking lot. A, a church dispute of whether or not to install restroom dividers in the women's restroom. A church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. A fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. And, and the, these all had little comments beside them, and they were like, I just want to know who took the picture. But... Um, <laughs> A petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. Dis- I don't like that one. Uh, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during service. I don't find that one as silly. But uh, a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Someone finally gave, gave a dime to settle the, ma- the issue. A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Two different churches reported fights over types of coffee. In one church, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks blend. In the other, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. An argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. Uh, an argument over who has authority to buy postage stamps for the church, and a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing, uh, a church member who was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server, it looked too much like liquor, uh, an argument in church over who has access to the copy machine. Some church members left the church, uh, one church, because, because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. This resulted in a major fight and split. An argument over whether or not to have gluten-free communion bread or not. A dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts, since black is the color of the devil. And a fight over whether to sing happy birthday each week or not. Now, I read this, and, and it is kind of funny. But more than funny, it's extremely sad. It is so sad that these are real situations where people were fighting and angry with one another. Why? Because our passions wage war within us. Now we think about that, and oftentimes we think about how our passions are big things and big sinful things, but what is the real issue? Pride. 
Why does it matter if we change the, the blend of coffee that's served? I like the other one better. Do you know what that is? Pride. Elevating what I think and what I want regardless of what other people want or what matters. Pride is the source of argument. Because what happens is, one person has this opinion that they hold and care dearly about. One person has this opinion that they hold and care dearly about. You know what happens when they come to each other? War. Arguments. Right? We all know what happens when one person is really easygoing and one person is prideful. They just kind of steamroll, right? But what happens when there's arguments? Pride on both sides. This passage says, our warring comes from the passions within us. I'm convinced that when we grow up, oftentimes the things that we dealt with as children don't really go away. Right? We look at children a lot of times and we think, man, these, they're, they're so silly. The things they get mad about, the things they care about are so silly. They do such silly things. Their reactions are, are so dramatic. But is it really? Don't, don't just all of the circumstances change a little bit, as we just heard in the, those passages? They just get more complex with greater impact. So you think about, uh, and you've probably all seen this happen before. There's two children playing, or one child's playing really peacefully. The other one comes up to him, takes the toy away. And it results in the one child crying and throwing a fit. And then they decide, well, I'm going to go, and I'm going to take it from them and push them. Right? And it's a whole ordeal. You've got to separate them, and there's this whole thing. It's like, oh, it's so silly. There, there's all kinds of toys. Why are they going after this one? Well, what happens when people grow up? Do people steal? Yeah. Do you know what sometimes people do when they get stolen from? They murder. It's the same problem. They took my car. I'm going to kill them. Where does that come from? It's the same thing that caused the kid. That kid has a toy. That looks real nice. I want it. I'm going to take it. Pride. They took what was mine. I'm going to get it back. Pride. It doesn't change when we get older. Caring about what we want over what other people want. Doing what it takes to, to make sure that what we want happens. It's a motivating factor for all sorts of other sins. Right? Our passions, if indulged and encouraged, will lead to compromise and greater sin. It's a slow fade into sin. You've heard that song, right? It's a slow fade as you, you give your... You don't all, all of a sudden do unthinkable things. But if we indulge our passions, if we indulge the things that we want, and we begin to compromise, it will give way to greater and greater things. I guarantee you, you can probably ask many people who have done many unthinkable things. And if you ask them if when they were a child they thought they would be doing those things, they would say no. They would never have dreamed that. How many people had maybe even made it their mission to never, have, never do the things that they've seen other people do? Never do what was done to them. But it happens. Because we indulge our passions. We indulge the things that we want. And it leads to greater and greater consequences, greater sin, greater impact in the lives of those around them. This passage says that you desire... You murder and covet. The reason that these things are happening is pride. But these are advanced examples of, of passions waging war within, right? These are hyperbolic examples. And so we can read this passage and say, well, I don't murder. I've never murdered anybody. I, you know, I'm not living in these extreme examples. 
But we can't think that because we don't murder that we're free from this problem. So what do we often say to people who encounter people like you think of a, a friend that goes to work and they're like, damn, there's this one coworker. They're just so mean to me. Or maybe your, your kids came home from school, like, yeah, there's this one kid that's always just so mean to me. No matter what I do, I try to be nice, but they're always just so mean to me. What, what's all often the answer we give? It's because they're jealous. Oh, they're jealous. That's why they're acting out. They're jealous because they see what you've got. They see the, what you're doing, right? If maybe it's on a sports team, well, I, this, this one teammate's always so mean. They're, they're jealous of the playtime you get. They're jealous of whatever it may be. That's true a lot of times, right? When people are jealous, they act out. And this is what a, a more realistic, everyday example of what this passage looks like. Right? It says you desire and you don't have and you murder... What's, what's a much lesser example of that? You desire and you don't have, you're, 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 you're jealous, so you act out. You draw lines, you, you slander, you talk about people behind their back, you make sure you talk to others about the things that are unsavory about other people. Why do we do this? Because it threatens our view of ourself. It's because there's things we want we don't have. Maybe that person has it. Where this, person, where this passage says murder, we might see a person that acts out in rudeness. And the problem here is that we are taking these things into our own hands, right? The passage says, you don't have because you don't ask. So instead of taking things into our own hands, we should take things to God, right? Cast all of your cares on Him because He cares for you. We know all these verses talk about taking your prayers and petitions to God. But too often, when we have issues, we try to take things into our own hands. We try to solve them. We try to find the solution. This passage says, you do not have because you do not ask. And sometimes our passions and desires may not be the issue. The problem is that we go about it the wrong way. When our passions and desires lead us to doing something that is wrong. Right? It's not wrong to want some water. That's a, that's a natural thing. You have to have it to live. God created us that way. It's not wrong to desire water. It is wrong to walk into a store, take it without paying for it. Our passions and desires, the things we need, are an issue. What's the problem there? They didn't ask. They didn't go about things the right way. So the passion and the desire in that, that situation is not wrong it's that they took matters into their own hands and did whatever it took to get what they wanted. Oftentimes in the world, with various issues, that's the problem. And so what does this passage say? We should take it to God. You, you don't have because you don't ask. We should ask God for the things we desire instead of taking those things out on those who are around us. Instead of taking them, asserting our will on those around us. Take it to God. But the passage goes on to say that asking with wrong motives is no better. You ask and you don't have because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your passions. You ask and you, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so you may spend it on your pleasures. One of the hard things to admit about ourselves and that we have to understand is that what we want and desire is not in and of itself good. In fact, our desires are often inclined toward evil. And it's very hard to admit because we like ourselves. We like to think that we are a pretty good person. Most people, if you ask them, they would say they're a pretty good person. And we like to think that if we want something, it's okay because we're good people. 
James says you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your pleasures. You ask with wrong motives. We talked a couple weeks ago in Sunday school with the youth about praying for others, interceding for others. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a song I remember hearing several years ago about praying for people, praying for other people. But they were asking with very bad motives. So here's the, the chorus of the song, saying, I'll, I'll pray for you. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray your flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, I pray for you. We shouldn't pray like that. And it sounds funny, but do you know there's probably people that do pray like that? Have you ever been that person, if you're honest with yourself, or wanted to pray like that, that you didn't pray for someone because if you did, that would be your prayer? Or it's like the scene in, 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 in the movie Bruce Almighty when he, he just answers all yes and everyone wins the lottery because everyone's praying to win the lottery so they all get like 18 cents. How many people you think a few, few weeks ago when the lottery got over $1 billion were praying every night, fervently, praying to win the lottery? Why? Well, I've got to get that Lamborghini. I've got to get a nicer house. I gotta get... You ask and you don't receive. Why? Because you want to spend it on your pleasures. When we go to God, when we ask Him for things, what matters? The motives of our heart. You can ask for the right things for the wrong reasons. So we have to be very careful and very concerned with the motive of our heart. Is it prideful? Is it because of what we want to build ourselves up for our own pleasures? What is James' response to this attitude to, to living and enjoying our worldly pleasures you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the God is friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. This is very strong language here. You adulterous people. Who is who does scripture say the church is? The church is the bride of Christ. The, the imagery used for, for, for in Scripture is that we are the bride of Christ, waiting for the day when we will, we will have the, the wedding feast right, of the Lamb. Right? There's all these, these parables that Jesus uses of the, the bride and the, and the wedding feast and the bridegroom. We will, we will live into the promise we have in eternity. And we're waiting for that day. We're like a bride engaged, waiting for the wedding. But what does this say if we live based off our worldly passions? It's like a spouse that's unfaithful. You can't love God and love the world. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Right? We, we understand this in worldly terms. right? When you get married, you're committing yourself to that one person. You don't have a bunch of people on the side. It's adultery. And so what we see here is that if you are following Christ, if you are following God, you can't keep the world on the side. You adulterous people. Where do we also see this language? In the Old Testament, the people of God who are called by His name when they would go and chase after idols. You adulterous people. It's the same language that was used in the Old Testament. 
In the book of Hosea, we see that, that God tells him to marry a, a woman that was going to do that very thing to him, to run away from him, to go and cling to other people. Why does he do this? To show what happens when his people leave him for the world, leave him for idols, for the things that are false, leave truth for falsehood. He says, you adulterous people. This is a very serious thing when we leave God and cling to the world. It's not a trivial matter. Or do you think it's without reason? The Scripture says the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely. What is this talking about? How would you feel if your spouse were to be unfaithful to you? Jealousy, hurt, envy, anger. Justified. They broke promises to you. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, envies intensely. You are, we are His people. His. We cannot run out and, and do things that are not what He would have us to do. It envies intensely. Right? When, and the Bible says that He's a jealous God. It, and people are like, well, what does that mean? He's a jealous God. That's a bad characteristic. No. He, we are His, and He will not share us with anyone or anything. He died for us. He purchased us with a price. The blood of Christ. And He will not share you with the things of this world. And so the Spirit that dwells within you envies intensely. This is a common problem. Every person has this problem of pride, thinking too highly of ourselves, valuing our pleasures, our desires, over what others want and over what God would have for us. But there's a shift in this passage. Humbling ourselves before God is the solution. Humbling ourselves before God is the solution. But He gives greater grace. But He gives greater grace. Here's the good news after we've talked about this. right? God has just told us through what James has written here that if you are living and loving the world, it is though you are cheating on God. You are walking away from the One who loves you. Clinging to idols, to false things. The reality is, is that if we're honest with ourselves, we all realize, I've done that. I've clinged to things that, that don't matter. I've, I've made my life about the things I want rather than fo following God in my life. It makes you despair a little bit when you realize what you've done to God. When you realize the depths of your sin. But He gives greater grace. It's a turning point in this passage. All these things we do, all the wars, the, the murder, the fighting, all these problems we have that are because of our own pride, of, of our own desires, He gives greater grace. And the solution, therefore He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we walk in what we want, when we walk and insist on our own, when we're walking in pride, but He gives grace to the humble. So despite this, despite the pride we have, despite our concern for ourselves over others, and despite our concern for ourselves over God, despite the way we are unfaithful to God, God gives greater grace. Even though we aren't faithful, God makes a way for even the worst sinner to be made right with Him. 
to have a relationship with Him. He opposes the proud, but gives grace for those who humble themselves. God is against. That's what that word means there. He opposes. He's against them. He stands in opposition, ready to wage war almost, is the implication of that word. I don't know about you, but how delusional would you have to be to stand in opposition to God? Like to take Him on. How's that going to work out for you? There, there was several, I mean, I think it was within the last year, there was a guy on an airplane that decided he was going to pick a fight with Mike Tyson. How delusional do you have to be to do that? You look at who stands in opposition to you and you realize, oh man, I might need to humble myself a little bit. Say, you know what? No matter whether I think I'm right or not, I'll let you take this one. This is your seat now. How much greater is God than any man we can face? How much more delusional would we have to be to be proud and prideful in the face of a holy God? It's insanity. But what do we see? God gives grace to the humble. So let me, under, let me make sure you understand this. Grace implies unmerited favor. So the proud and the humble, neither of them deserve God's love. Both of them are condemned and convicted because of their sin and the things they have done. But God gives grace, undeserved favor, to those who humble themselves. To be saved requires humility. Because it's the admission of wrongdoing, right? The ABCs of salvation that we use as we teach children, admitting that you're a sinner. We, we, we know this, right? The, the first step in, in, in recovery or, or dealing with something is admitting you're, that you have a problem. Dealing with the realization, acknowledging. That's a hard thing to do, to say, I was wrong. How many people don't speak to people they, they loved, they were friends with, family with, because they can't say those words, I was wrong. I was wrong. It's humility to admit that you're a sinner. It's humility to, to admit and to lay down and say, I cannot save myself. The complete reliance upon Jesus for salvation. It's humility. Therefore, submit to God. What is submitting? It, it's this idea, we've talked about this, proud, tall is the word in the Old Testament, humble, low. Submitting, to lower yourself to God, to come under authority. It's changing our posture toward God. For the Opposes the proud, the one that stands tall in the face of God. Humble yourself, submit to God, change your posture before God, the posture of your heart. A very physical example of this, if you go to the airport and you put your luggage on the rack and it says 75 pounds, what are you going to have to do if you don't want to pay more money? Remove the extra weight. To remove anything that's weighing it down, that's, that's making it be too high. So if we want to submit to God, what we have to do, remove from ourselves the things that puff us up. Remove the things that we're prideful about. To change our posture toward God, to lower ourselves in the right posture to deal with God. This is why oftentimes when we pray or when we think of praying, there's this idea of kneeling. You're kneeling before the Father. You're submitting yourself to God. 
We understand this relationship and we should approach it accordingly. Humility is seen through submission to God. In John 3.30, we see when John the Baptist is hearing about what Jesus is doing and they tell him about all these things, what's he say? He must increase. I must decrease. John, the Bible says, is the greatest among men. Built a ministry. Why? Not for himself, but to glorify God. And when he was a forerunner, the one that came, a herald to Christ coming, to his kingdom. And so when Jesus came, and people turned from John, as he's imprisoned as well, and looked to Jesus, what's he say? Well, he doesn't say, well, why aren't they looking at me anymore? No. I must decrease. He must increase. And so in our lives, every day, we must decrease and He must increase. Our posture lowers so that we are in right relationship with God. We move on. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submission to God is resisting the devil. This is an active fight against the devil. We need to understand that resisting the devil, okay, so when we think about that, when we think about the word resist oftentimes, it's kind of just like pulling away. But what's the goal of resisting? Right? The idea of resisting arrest, right? Is the person resisting arrest just trying to make it hard for the officer? Are they trying to get away? Flee from the devil. We'll get to that later. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Make war with the sin in your life. Fight against the devil in your life. There was a a sermon that John Piper preached many years ago. He's talking about how so many Christians in their lives will will grumble about the things that are wrong in their life. Well, man, I'm I'm really struggling with this. I'm really dealing with this. I just can't overcome this murmuring, grumbling about all these problems. Make war with the sin in your life. Fight against the devil and his influences in your life. It's not a passive thing. Actively resist the devil. Here's what we have to understand. Refusing to submit to God is walking in step with the devil. You know, we have in, in our mind in this culture, and there's so many people that talk about these things, that, that wild ideas about what it means to serve the devil. People will talk about, oh, there's these people that sold their soul, right? There's all these conspiracy theories about, about famous people that sold their soul to the devil for their fame. You've probably heard someone say something like that before. This wild idea that, that it's this big bargain. No. That's what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to think you're in control that you've got it all under control. But in reality, when you refuse to submit to God, when you're walking under your own power, that is exactly where the devil wants you to be. Walking in your pride. Walking in your arrogance. Thinking you have everything together. Because if you don't submit to God, you are exactly where the devil wants you to be. He doesn't need you to claim allegiance or to praise His name, He wants you to reject the living God. And in doing so, He leads you to destruction. 
So resist the devil, and the promise is that he will flee from us. This is something we should seek after and be encouraged by, that if we will resist him, if we will submit to God and resist him, and resist the devil, he will flee from us. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If we will seek God, he is faithful, and he will draw near to us. This is the good news that we have. And Jesus gave us an example of what this looks like in the, the parable that he gave of the prodigal son. Right? We, we find the prodigal son living, feeding the pigs, wishing he could eat what he's feeding them. He says, I'll return to my father's house and ask him if I can be a servant because they live a much better life than this. And so he goes and he's rehearsing all the things he's going to say to him. And while he's still a far way off, the father runs to him. So what do we see here? The son drawing toward his father. He's walking in shame and humility. And what do we see the father do? Run and embrace him. So what does this tell us to do? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. This is not some grand thing that the Bible is telling us to do, to draw near to Him. When I, when I think of that phrase, draw near to, what I most often think about, I think about when my children hurt themselves, which they often do, and they're hurting. And I say, come here. And they come with their head down, they kind of just curl into my arms. They're drawing near to me. Who's the one that's comforting? I am. They're hurting. They're in this hard situation. Drawing near to God doesn't presume we come to Him with our life all together, cleaned up and polished. We simply go to Him. Like the prodigal son who is probably still smelling like the pigs. And He will embrace us. And He will comfort us. And He will wipe away the tears and restore us. Draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. Verse 8 continued, Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so after we've drawn near to Him, we are called to cleanse ourselves this is what it means to repent, to turn away from, to go the other directions. Your hands are dirty, clean them. Your hearts are wicked, purify them. We know they are because that's why Jesus died for us, because our hands are dirty and our hearts are wicked. But we can't stay that way. We've been embraced by the Father, so we clean ourselves up. That prodigal son didn't go to that banquet that was thrown for him, that feast smelling like pigs. They brought him the good robes. They cleaned him up because of what the Father had done for him. We cleanse our hands. We purify our hearts because of what Jesus has already done for us. We make our lives match the status we've been given by God. So we cleanse our hands. The purity in our actions. What do you do stuff with your hands? The things you do should be clean. You should do righteous things. You purify your heart. This means changing your desires. 
So you can't do good things but have wicked intentions and have all this frustration in your heart. Can't do that. You can't, and I don't know how this would work, you can't purify your heart and still do bad things. I don't know how that would work. You do both. Purify your intentions. Purify your actions. It's not easy. You ever had really dirty hands? I mean, like really dirty hands? Like when I painted, we were painting some silos, and they were using acrylic paint. The car that I just sold, it still has paint on one of those seats because I had some paint on my pants, and it got on there. Couldn't get it off. You know how hard it is to clean your hands sometimes when they're dirty? You ever go into one of those truck stops that has the grease destroying? It kind of destroys your hands a little bit too. It doesn't feel good. When we purify our hearts, when we clean our hands, we come into the image of the God who saved us. It's not always going to be fun. It's going to hurt to peel off some of those things, to get some of that dirt, that sin out of our lives. But it's necessary. And we see this. Verse 9, be miserable, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's the breaking down of ourselves so that we will be made new. You ever have a splinter removed? It doesn't feel good. You ever have something done to you, a surgery for about eight months, it hurts really bad. When I had my shoulder repaired, I couldn't move it for a couple months. When I had my nose fixed so I could breathe through both nostrils, I couldn't breathe at all for about two months through my nose. Why did I do those things? Why did I endure the pain? Why do you endure the pain you go through when you have a surgery? Because of the better result that awaits. So let your laughter be turned to mourning. Why? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. In this parallel we've been talking about, about height and your stature before God, this, this posture you have before God, it runs really deep. It could almost be read, lower yourselves before the Lord. Bow down before the Lord, and He will raise you up. This is what we are called to do. Paradoxically, through the process of humbling ourselves before the Lord, we will actually achieve our highest good. Pride in this life will try to puff ourselves up, achieve, and become something among men. And we will never attain the goal. We will never have enough. We will never satisfy our appetites. But what do we do? What do we see in this passage? It's kind of like the picture, and I'm sure many of you have seen it, the picture of a little kid with a, with a really dirty, messed up teddy bear. And then Jesus is on the other side, and he's behind his back. He's got a really nice teddy bear, right? It's this idea that if you'll just give it to God. He'll give you something better. Now, depending on how you look at this passage or this picture, it could be very incorrect or it could be spot on. And for this passage, it makes so much sense. Lay yourself down and God will give you more than you've ever thought of attaining for yourself. Lower yourself and He will raise you to places you could never be on your own. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to become wealthy, you're going to become rich, people are going to admire you. The opposite. You'll be despised and rejected in this life. But the promise that comes, the promise of, of this relationship with God that we will have is so much better than anything we can chase after on our own. We remember the, the passage we went through in Philippians, Philippians 3.8, I consider everything a loss 
because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's so much better than whatever you're chasing after. Humility is how we attain a relationship with God that is greater than anything we can strive after in this world. But the bad thing is that pride keeps us from following in obedience. Pride is what keeps us from following in obedience. You can't humble yourself before the Lord and be prideful. Pride is what keeps you from humbling yourself before the Lord. And so what I tell you and ask you this morning is how is your relationship with the Lord? How is your posture toward God? Are you standing proudly in His face, opposing Him? It's not a very wise place to be. Are you humbly submitted to God? And when we say this, when we talk about submission to God, this is a holistic submission all of your life. Are you submitted to God except for these things? It's pride. What makes you hold on to those things? It's pride in your life. There is no shortcut or substitute to right relationship with God other than submitting ourselves in humility to Him. So today, in what way do you need to submit to the Lord? Where do you need to lay down your pride and submit to Him? Is it in the way you interact with others? Right? We, we remember that comical list of fights in the church. People submitted to God, pridefully warring with each other. Do you need to lay down your pride in the way that you interact with others? Is it the way that you live your life? Are you chasing after the things in the world? Living as what James would be adulterous people. Submit to God, lay down your pride. Or is it today the way you need to submit to Him in your salvation? You may be here today and you may have been trying to, to earn your salvation, to be good enough to earn God's love. What the Bible clearly tells us, if you want to have a right relationship with God, you must lay yourself down, admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and was raised again, and confess Him as your Lord and Savior submitting yourselves to Him, and He will exalt you and give you salvation and eternal life. Not because you did something, but because of what Jesus has done for you. It's hard to humble yourself, to lay yourself aside. It's hard to submit, to place yourself under authority, but it's worth it. So today, as we have our time of invitation, I want to challenge you what is God calling you to do? How do you need to submit to Him this morning? And during this time, I also want to challenge you to submit your possessions to God. In whatever way that He leads you, how can you give and support those who have lost so much this week? So during this invitation, if you would feel led, you can come and place your gift, your love offering for those who have, have suffered tragedy. I will be down front for prayer for anything that you may be dealing with, and the altar is open as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you 
for this day that you've given us and this time we've had to spend in your word. And God, I pray that you would just remove all of the pride from our hearts. Help us to be people who are submitted to you, who humble ourselves before you, who seek what you want for our lives over what we want, that we seek the good of others rather than the good of ourselves, that we build one another up instead of tearing down, and that through doing so, we will be your people who are called by your name, living faithfully for you in this world. God, I pray that you would convict each of us to deal with you as you're working on our hearts. And for any who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would remove all pride that would hold them back, that they would submit to you for the first time today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.